Support for this podcast comes from Outdoor Supply Hardware, inviting listeners to OSHA's big anniversary sale celebration, May 20th through the 26th, featuring daily deals, $15,000 in giveaways, 20% off store-wide on Saturday and Sunday, and a lot more. Learn more at OSH.com. Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest, and I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid, and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just what we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio. It was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support. From KQED. Hey there, we've got two great stories for you this week. Both are about Californians determined to look for threads of hope and connection right now, and how even taking a small step can have a huge impact. We're gonna hear about a new project to transfer farmland in San Mateo County to the indigenous people whose ancestors lived and thrived there. It is bringing me great joy to have a positive goal to look forward to and healing the land and having the land heal us. And we'll meet a Placer County family on a mission to rescue a young relative, even if it means dropping into a war zone. It's really hard to think about something else other than what really is the most important for me at this moment. I'm Sasha Coca, and you're listening to the California Report magazine. Here in California, so many of us are watching in horror as the Russian invasion of Ukraine continues to devastate that country, with Ukrainians fleeing their homeland to wherever they can find safety. There is already an established Ukrainian community here in California. Many of them arrived after the fall of the Soviet Union. Some are helping their loved ones in Ukraine right now from afar. Others are throwing themselves right into the conflict. Pauline Bartoloni, who's an editor with CAP Radio, has been following a family in the Sacramento area who's doing everything it takes to keep one little boy safe. She brings us this audio diary. It's February 26th, just two days after the Russian invasion of Ukraine. I'm at a prayer breakfast at the Spring of Life Church in a suburb of Sacramento, and it's packed. Ukrainian speakers, young and old, mingle outside discussing the latest news affecting their homeland. That's where I first meet Volodymyr Andrushchek. He's trying to explain to me through a friend. He's going back to his home country. He has plans, he tells me. 
something about being scared and cooking a dish called plov for people in the conflict zone. <laughs> he have a good idea for, for cooking uh, plow, uh, like uh, meat and uh, rice together. But something gets lost in translation, and that's when Volodymyr calls his daughter Dina over. My daughter, Dina. My name is Dina Samadaro. So I live here in the United States for 20 years now. We came to Sacramento as refugee. Dina and her family were able to come to the U.S. as religious refugees because of the persecution they as Christians experienced when Ukraine was part of the Soviet Union. But two of her brothers are still in Ukraine, and one is paralyzed and has a three-year-old son named Ben. And the boy's mother recently died of COVID. So Dina tells me her father, Volodymyr, is planning to fly back into the war zone to try to rescue his grandson. My parents are flying and um, hopefully to meet at the border in Poland and bring him here, if that will be possible. because uh, men cannot leave the country, but uh, kids can. It's not long before Dina gets weepy, but she's focusing on things she can do, like book plane tickets for her parents and raise money for humanitarian efforts. Trying to become, but it's really hard to, to believe that it's happening to my land and to people that I love. So I've been crying a lot. It's March 1st, the Tuesday after Russia invaded Ukraine. Dina is still in helping mode back at her house in Auburn in the Sierra Nevada foothills. Okay, yours? Okay, put it on. She's babysitting her young nephews, and she's glued to her phone, fundraising for Ukraine. People have been calling me all morning today, you know, trying to see, uh, to help their relatives up there. And because I did announcement in our church on Sunday that I can connect and I can help, they're all calling now. Dina is out of breath because of the sheer number of things she's juggling. In just a few hours, she's driving her parents to the airport in San Francisco so they can embark on their journey to rescue their grandson, Ben. They're flying to, through Germany to Poland. My friend will be picking them up from airport, giving them shelter for the night. And then in the morning, they will leave to cross the border to Ukraine. Her dad walks up from another part of the hillside property. You wouldn't guess he's about to fly to a war zone across the world. He moves slowly. Volodymyr has a prosthetic right leg from an accident working in a factory in Ukraine. I ask him, through Dina, how he's feeling about his upcoming mission. I have to be there where people, uh, where it's very bad for people. That's where the need is. Volodymyr isn't just determined to retrieve his grandson. He plans to stay in Ukraine to help people stuck in the humanitarian crisis. He says as a disabled person, he has connections that can help other disabled people passing through Rivna, their hometown in western Ukraine. I ask him... This sounds very risky. What moves him to do this? Food. 
wherever there is a need or hard to breathe for people, as Christian, I want to be there. Many of the Ukrainians in the Sacramento area are Christians, like Volodymyr and Dina. People of any faith in Ukraine were prevented from higher education and jobs under the USSR. Some worshipped underground, in their homes or in the forest, to escape fines and punishment. After 1990, these persecuted believers were given a pathway to the U.S., and many settled in California. So it's no surprise that faith drives almost everything Ukrainians do here. Just give them the list. Mm-hmm. Just no, give it's, them. It's, just it's March 11th, two weeks after the Russian invasion of Ukraine. And Dean is back in her office for the first time since the start That's of the awesome. war. She runs a financial advising business. And today, she's wearing a pink silk shirt and her blonde hair frames her face. But she says it's hard to focus on work. Trying to keep my emotions under control. And um, it's really hard to think about something else other than what really is the most important for me at this moment. Dina co-owns the business with her husband, Denis Samadarov. He's also a pastor of a Slavic Baptist church in the area, and he's Russian. I know Russians are crazy. (laughs) Denis Samadarov's ancestors, who were also Christian, fled Russia generations ago. He grew up in the Republic of Georgia, and then his family moved to Russia again when he was a teenager, after the fall of the Soviet Union. He says people there are brainwashed by the Russian media. Basically what's going on right now in in Russia, they will say, hey, we are protecting our borders and we don't want the United States to get closer to us. It's all politics. But media playing a huge role. But he says most Russians here in the U.S., they came here to free themselves from their homeland. So many Russian immigrants, as well as many Slavic people who are from the former Soviet territories, they support Ukrainian independence. We all understand Russians and Ukrainians is like a brother and brother and sister and sister, you know. It's such a close culture and everything. We know songs of each other. We, we understand history of each other. But politicians, I guess, they choose the wrong path. But today, Dina's not thinking about politicians. She's thinking about her family. She has good news. Her parents rescued their grandson, Ben, and brought him to Poland. They were able to get uh, my little nephew from Ukraine, which is good. Our concern right now is we have this three-year-old. We're planning to bring him to the United States somehow, and nobody's giving the visas anymore. So we're stuck. We're a little bit stuck now. So Dina's mom is in Poland, hoping their grandson Ben can receive refugee status so that she can bring him back to California. As for Dina's dad... He's throwing himself fully into the humanitarian effort, going back and forth between Poland and western Ukraine. On March 18th, three weeks into the war in Ukraine, Dina's still glued to her phone back at her house in Auburn. She's watching videos her dad sent. He's driving food into the war zone and bussing refugees out. 
Here are some videos that I'm watching how they transport um, all the humanitarian supplies, food basically, and hygiene products. And it's very organized. Footage shows him loading boxes into a white van, speaking calmly into the camera. He's wearing a heavy winter coat and a hat. Dina video calls her dad. It's roughly 7.30 p.m. Poland time. Hi, Dad. Good morning. How are you? Good. Okay. Through Dina's phone, Volodymyr gives us a tour of the shelter he's staying at in Warsaw. I see what looks like a couple of rooms in a modest apartment with wooden bunk beds for fewer than a dozen people. He's among all the other refugees in that building. They usually stay there for a day or two and then get relocated to different places. I wonder how his young grandson is doing with all the changes. He just left his dad in Ukraine, and he's in a new country, Poland, with his grandparents. Where's the baby? Where's the baby? Can we see the baby? They went to the store. Mm-hmm. I just saw him. He's so cute. (laughs) The baby, or Ben, is excited about coming to the United States, according to his grandpa. Dina says he'll fit right in with their big extended family in California. He wants to meet with his cousins we never met yet. We have a four-year-old, too, and he's three, so they will play together really well. It's April 3rd now, and Dina's plan to bring Ben to California is taking shape. She and her husband, Dennis, meet him in Tijuana to help bring him across the border to the U.S. Dina documents it with her phone. Do you know how long we've been waiting for you? Dennis asks his weary nephew, who just flew in from Poland with his grandma. In Tijuana, they get good news. Ben was granted a one-year visa to live with them in the Sierra Nevada foothills. But before they head home, they'll make an important stop for this three-year-old refugee, a full-day adventure in Disneyland. For the California Report, I'm Pauline Bartoloni. We've got a quick update on the family. Ben is settling in in Auburn, and Dina's dad, Volodymyr, also made his way back to California last week. But the 65-year-old says he's planning to return to Ukraine as soon as he can to continue to help people caught in the war zone. We've been hearing a lot about reparations and efforts to compensate or return resources to people whose ancestors have faced exploitation or slavery or genocide. In San Mateo County, there's a new project led by a group of women of color, and one of the goals is to return land to indigenous people. I went to go check it out with the California Report's Izzy Bloom, and we spoke to three of the women leading this land back project. Here's Izzy. When Kata Gomes was growing up in San Jose, the only thing she was told about her heritage was that she's a 12th generation Californian. But she'd always had a strong intuition that there was more to the story. 
and one of my younger cousins asked me if I ever heard my mother and my grandmother speak of our indigenous roots, and I said, never. But I think it was a form of protection to protect us until the time was right for us to come forward and to reconnect with our land and our culture and our heritage here in California. For over a hundred years, Kata told us, people believed the Rametush were extinct. They're one of the tribes the Spanish invaders grouped together as the Ohlone, and they're the original indigenous people of the San Francisco Peninsula. It was only in the last decade or so that a handful of families have discovered their ancestral link to the Rametush tribe. As a young adult, Kata learned she had lineage to the Salinan tribe. Then, four years ago, Kata's cousin unearthed records from the Spanish missions, revealing their family's lineage to the Rametush as well. One of the ancestors they discovered in those records was a woman named Muchiete. She was from the village site Timigtok, which is alongside the Calera Creek in what's now the city of Pacifica. The Spanish missionaries who recorded her baptismal date back in 1782 estimated Muchiete was about 50 years old then. So we were really fortunate to be able to retrieve that information from the mission records because our family, we were the survivors. 80% of the indigenous people who went through the mission system in California did not survive. Now, Kata has the opportunity to reclaim land where the Rametush once lived and thrived, with the help of a nonprofit called Deep Medicine Circle. She's basically creating a tribal land trust to accept a 38-acre farm that Deep Medicine Circle wants to return to the Rametush people. And she's named it the Muchiete Indigenous Land Trust. And so I felt really lucky to have been able to have access to her indigenous name and have named the land trust in her honor to honor our ancestors. Kata's lived off the grid for 40 years in the redwoods near Santa Cruz, and she taught school kids about restoring salmon and trout habitat. And then we'd take the children to the river, and each child would have a little Dixie cup to release a little baby fish back into the river. Kata is now working to revitalize the Rametush language and plans to open a cultural center and also an herbal apothecary on the farm. A year ago, I never would have imagined that I would be doing this work of rematriating the land. But in hindsight, I see that my whole life has been preparing me for this. Rematriation is the work of indigenous women restoring the land and the balance of power. And the other women at Deep Medicine Circle are working in solidarity with Kata to help move the land back. Kata's work to rematriate the land began once she connected with singer Rupa Maria. Take a walk with me through the redwood trees. Oh, I teared up. I almost started crying when I first heard her sing On Stolen Land. It was so touching. While the wind whispers songs, the Rupa grew up in Silicon Valley, and she is the daughter of Punjabi immigrants from India. I believe that the same violence that, you know, pushed Ohlone people off their land and were, you know, ended up in the atrocities of genocide 
is the same violence that impacted my family in India, is the same violence that is destroying the earth right now. So I think there is some sympathy there of understanding what it means to be from a colonized place or colonized people. And some of the songs she sings with her band, Rupa and the April Fishes, talk about indigenous rights. Silent in the shadows of sound, waiting to be heard, waiting to be found. Rupa and Kata met last spring, when Kata's cousin invited her to the farm that Deep Medicine Circle wants to return to indigenous people while tackling food and health issues at the same time. Because Rupa is not only a musician, she's a doctor. When I was five years old, I told my kindergarten teacher that I wanted to be a ballerina and a surgeon. And my mom always laughs at that because the teacher called my mom like a little distraught, like, I don't know what to do with your daughter. She said this wild outlandish thing. And then I ended up becoming a musician and a doctor. And so I wasn't that far off when I was five. I had this very strong desire to heal. Rupa is now a professor of medicine at UCSF. And about 15 years ago, she started noticing a lot more people coming in with stomach problems. Like ulcerative colitis. And Crohn's disease and colon cancer. I just helped someone who was 35 years old die of colon cancer. So increasingly, like, younger and younger people. She wanted to try to figure out what was going on. So she started looking more deeply at stool cultures and at the microbiology of the gut. And then she got interested in the microbiology of soil, where the food we eat is grown, and how it's been impacted by pesticides and fertilizers that I started to piece these things together and wonder like how the earth's gut, our soil, is being impacted and how that might be leading to diseases in the human body uh, by way of what's happening in our gut. Rupa has been involved with projects for a long time with the indigenous community. She helped out with medical response at Standing Rock. She was invited by Lakota health leaders and elders to set up a permanent community clinic there. And now with Deep Medicine Circle, she's helped acquire the farmland about 40 miles west of San Jose that'll be returned to Kata in the Rame Touche. Where we're standing right now, we are just a mile away from San Gregorio Beach. This valley is uh, very close to where Portola landed when he started his brutal conquest of the San Francisco Peninsula. And actually when his ship landed, the, the crewmates got sick so that the indigenous people who lived in these um, encampments along this valley went down and offered their food and medicine to help heal those people. Ramatush people lived on this land long before the Spanish arrived back in 1769. But after the conquest, this land was taken away, and until recently, it was farmed for profit. But now it'll be transferred to Kata's Muchiate Indigenous Land Trust. We would like to return it to the indigenous people to farm it with them and to farm it under their sovereignty. And Rupa says part of the idea is to cultivate the original medicinal plants that indigenous people used here. And that brings us to the third woman we're going to meet from Deep Medicine Circle. Her name is Sage Lapina. She's an ethnobotanist from the Namtapan Wintu tribe, which is at the headwaters of the Trinity River in Northern California. And she's helping Rupa and Kata learn about the native plants on this land. 
open and up. Which there. part of the elderberry do you use? The berry itself? The berry right? itself, but also the flowers. The flowers are really nice for fever. Yeah. Huh. And they also make great uh, frittatas. Sage is also harvesting wild stinging nettle. And as I watch her clip the stalks, I notice her whispering to the plant. Each time she's about to snip, she says, thank you. Thank you. Yeah, so beautiful. Thank you. Sage is harvesting this nettle to make tea, but there are tons of other uses for it too. You can um, grind them up like we had a beautiful nettle soup very recently. You can make pesto with them. You can take nettles regularly so you'll have less hay fever. Mm. She studied with legendary Pomo Wintun doctor Mabel McKay, who started teaching her about plants when Sage was about eight years old. The roots of our culture are within the roots of the plants. As we walk with Sage and Rupa along this dirt trail through the farm, Rupa tells us she started using stinging nettle herself to help with respiratory symptoms after she got long COVID. She thinks she was exposed working in the hospital at UCSF when the first cruise ship patients came back in March 2020. It was such a great thing for me to meet Sage and to learn about nettle and to start to take these medicines and to learn to make the medicines. After Sage harvests the nettle, she and Rupa head to one of the few buildings on the farm. They lay the nettle out on a porch, allowing the spiders to crawl off. Just let them run away. Yeah. There's <laughs> He's like, I'm out of here. Then they go inside, where there's a kitchen, to prep the stinging nettle tea. We all sit down at the kitchen table with Kata Gomes. She's the Ramitush woman who we heard from earlier. What did you think when you first set foot here on this land? What were your feelings? I would say it's mixed feelings. Um, there's so much trauma that has happened to the indigenous people of California. There's a sadness and a joy at the same time. Kata takes out a traditional instrument. It's this clapper stick, and it's made from the hollow wood of the elderberry tree. And she starts singing. On May 1st, Deep Medicine Circle will officially rename the farm Te Kwe Ana Oea, which means honoring Mother Earth. Returning the land is just one part of the vision for Deep Medicine Circle. Starting this summer, they're also planning to give away the food they grow here for free to communities that need it. And Rupa Maria, the musician, doctor, and farmer, says Deep Medicine Circle is developing a toolkit to empower other groups across the U.S. to start changing the food system. So we're tracking what happens to the soil health when we farm in this way. What happens to the water health? What happens to the health of our farmers? What happens to the health of the people who eat the food that we're growing? And they're inviting all kinds of healthcare workers to come to the farm to heal from the trauma of the pandemic. To help 
compost our grief to doctor each other around what we've seen and witnessed during the pandemic and to reconnect to land as a source of healing. You heard from Rupa Maria, Sage Lapina, and Kata Gomes from Deep Medicine Circle, a project to return land to the Rometush people, the original indigenous people of the San Francisco Peninsula. Deep Medicine Circle's just getting started. And here on the California Report magazine, we're going to keep following the evolution of their projects to see how they're creating food security for the communities where they're giving the food they grow away. And by the way, all the music in that story was composed and performed by Rupa and the April Fishes. And that's it for our show this week. The California Report magazine is a production of KQED in San Francisco. Victoria Mauleon is our senior editor. Our producer-director is Susie Racho. Brendan Willard is our engineer. And our team also includes Amanda Font and Izzy Bloom. And I'm Sasha Koka. Thanks again for listening. This is the California Report magazine. Your state, your stories. Do you love learning about the San Francisco Bay Area? Its history, its people, its unique blend of cultures? Then you should check out the Bay Curious book. I'm Katrina Schwartz, editor and producer on the Bay Curious podcast, and I'm here to let you know that for the month of May, we've worked out a sweet deal for KQED podcast listeners. Right now, you can get the Bay Curious ebook for $1.99. That's right, $1.99. Just search for Bay Curious wherever you get your ebooks or find the link in our show notes. This offer does expire at the end of the month, though, so you'll want to act on it fast. Happy reading! Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable, human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast.